70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, this is Jonathan from Kentucky in the United States. I started listening to Korean music a couple years ago, and that led me to the podcast version of One Fine Day. And I really enjoyed uh, Lena's segments with the other guest hosts about uh, dramas and several decades of Korean music. And I learned a lot, and it was very entertaining. And I discovered that I could download the KBS World Radio app and listen to the rebroadcast and also hear the music. Uh, so it's pretty much a daily listen for me at this point. Uh, I also like to check in on K-Pop Connection because um, they play great music as well and also keep me informed on entertainment news. And I just want to wish everybody at KBS and especially the people that make it possible a, a happy 70th birthday. And I look forward to the next milestone, uh, which will probably be 75. Uh, so I, I'm still going to be a listener then, I'm sure. Thanks. 70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Tuesday the 28th of November and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon jang South Korea is bracing for the vote to select the host city for the 2030 World Expo. A final presentation is set to take place before the vote in Paris. We'll preview the proceedings for our news briefing today. For our in-depth, we'll be speaking to Kenneth Baer, a Korean-American missionary who was detained in North Korea for two years. We'll be getting his thoughts on the plight of South Korean detainees who remain in the North. And coming up for Touch Basin's Hole, we'll connect with golfer Alison Lee to talk about how she overcame doubt to achieve her best ever world ranking this year. Let's begin Career 24. After nine years of waiting and campaigning, Busan is about to wrap up its bid after one last presentation in front of the governing body for the World Expo. The host city for the 2030 edition will be put to a vote shortly after, and the winner is expected to be announced at around midnight Tuesday, going on to Wednesday, Korea time. For this and our other major headlines of the day, we have in the studio with us Deputy Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English News Service, Kim In-kyung. In-kyung, hello. Hello, Tano. So the host city for the 2030 World Expo will finally be decided on Tuesday. Can you tell us about the timeline for the decision? Sure. South Korea and rival countries Saudi Arabia and Italy will give their final presentations, which is the very final step in the process, at the General Assembly of the Bureau International Des Exposition at 1.30pm in Paris. That's 9.30pm Korea time. Busan will be the first city to give its final 20-minute presentation, followed by Rome and Riyadh, before a 20-minute break gives way to voting by about 180 member countries at 3pm local time. And how long will it take to tally the votes? 
It won't take long as voting will be conducted through an anonymous electronic voting system. If a city receives more than two thirds of the votes in the first round, the location of the 2030 World Expo will be immediately announced. If not, the first and second place cities will go into a runoff vote, with the one receiving a simple majority of the votes being named the host city. The result that everyone has been waiting for is expected to be announced around midnight in South Korea. And a lot of attention is being paid to South Korea's final presentation. Can you give us a preview of what we can expect? South Korea is expected to highlight an expo in Busan as the ideal platform for global solidarity as humanity addresses shared challenges. The city plans to differentiate itself from Riyadh and Rome by sharing the country's experience of rising from the ashes of the Korean War through international aid, as well as offering opportunities for mid- to long-term industrial and cultural cooperation. Seoul is keeping the identities of final presentation speakers under wraps, but there is speculation that former UN Secretary General Ban Ki Moon, Prime Minister Han Dok Su, and Na Seung Yeon, who gained fame after presenting the pitch for the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics, could be included. And what are some expectations for how the vote will go? Well, a foreign ministry official said on Tuesday that it will be a very tight race, with some countries expected to shift their positions at the last minute. Speaking to South Korean media outlets in Paris on Monday, Prime Minister Han said it is too early to make projections, but he feels that South Korea has secured much support and that South and that the South Korean delegation will do their best to meet the public's expectations. While Busan began as an underdog in the competition, it anticipates a runoff against Riyadh following a first ballot ending without any entrant winning two-thirds of support. Yes, we are on the edges of our seats. We'll bring you the results of the vote on our show tomorrow. Let's move on now to security issues. North Korean soldiers in the joint security area at the Truce village of Panmunjom have been seen carrying pistols. The move coincides with the regime's decision to restore frontline guard posts. Can you tell us more? According to multiple South Korean and U.S. military sources on Tuesday, the North's personnel within the JSA have been armed while standing duty since late last week, while South Korean soldiers remain on guard without firearms. The UN command, which has jurisdiction over the JSA, said it is closely watching the North Korean military's movements and considering countermeasures. Pyongyang has implemented numerous policy changes after scrapping the September 2018 inter-Korean military agreement a day after South Korea suspended part of the accord. In response to the regime's launch of its spy satellite, as we mentioned on Monday, the UN Security Council held a discussion on the satellite launch. Uh, can you tell us about the results? There were no surprises, with the UNSC failing to produce a tangible outcome, such as a presidential statement or a resolution, due to opposition from permanent members China and Russia. At the meeting, North Korean ambassador to the UN Kim Song defended the satellite launch as a legitimate exercise of his country's sovereignty, while Seoul's ambassador Hwang Jung-kuk said that Pyongyang is moving beyond violations of UNSC resolutions to breaches and now almost mock council decisions. He said the regime's provocative actions are no longer merely a regional issue but a global one. And finally, the national football team head coach Jurgen Klinsmann and the Korea Football Association. Has been under fire after Hwang Ijo, who's being investigated by the police on charges of illegally filming sexual encounters with his ex-girlfriend, competed in a recent 2026 World Cup qualifier that was last week. The CAFE held a meeting on Monday to discuss the matter. What was the conclusion? 
The KFA decided that Huang will not be part of the national football team until he's cleared of the charges. The head of the KFA's ethics committee, Yi Yunnam, said a member of the national team has the duty to maintain dignity as part of the team with a high sense of morality and responsibility. He said that in reaching its decision, the committee took into consideration that a member of the national team must handle various factors to fulfill such a duty, including managing his private life. Police investigation of Huang was first confirmed on November 18th. The case made headlines when his ex-girlfriend blasted the footballer's claim that the videos were filmed with her consent. Right, so it appears his participation in the upcoming Asian Cup in January is under doubt as well. That's where we'll wrap it up for our news briefing today. Thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you. According to South Korea's Unification Ministry, there are currently six South Korean citizens who have been detained long-term in North Korea. This includes missionary Kim Jong-woo, who was arrested in Pyongyang in 2013 and has been held captive since. The ministry has condemned the incarcerations as illegal and inhumane and vowed continued efforts to determine their whereabouts and bring about their repatriation in cooperation with civic groups. To that end, a related task force directly under the Unification Minister was established in September. However, questions remain about their fate and amid no signs of improvement in inter-Korean relations. To talk more about this issue today, we have Kenneth Baer, a Korean-American missionary who was held by North Korea between 2012 and 2014. He is now the CEO and founder of New Korea Foundation International, a non-profit organization dedicated to rebuilding the lives of North Korean refugees. He joins us on the line now. Reverend Bear, hello, and thank you for your time. Well, thank you for having me. So before we get into the situation with the South Koreans who are currently being held, uh, in North Korea, we wanted to talk to you about your personal experience to try and get a sense of what they might be going through as well. So if we begin with your story today, you were arrested in North Korea in November 2012 while leading a tour group and were sentenced to 15 years of hard labour for crimes against the state. However, you were eventually freed under uh, just uh, over two years later. Can you remind our listeners about how and why you were detained and your sentencing? Yes, I, I set up a tour company uh, specializing in tour, tour into North Korea uh, for the Christians around the world, for them to come, go to North Korea to experience the nature um, and then um, experience culture and then just to be able to connect with the people. Uh, but in the, so I, I, I led more than 18 tours to North Korea within two years period of time. Uh, many times that they often went to worship and pray. At the end that they actually uh, charged me uh, of that crime against the state by saying that is I was trying to overthrow the government of North Korea through prayer and worship. And I was sentenced to 15 years of hard labor sentence. I was the first American was sent to labor camp in North Korea uh, since the Korean War. And I was held there for about 735 days, and I was finally released in 2014. 
and I was able to come home um, after 735 days. As you mentioned, you were sent to a labor camp. I'm sure it was uh, a very difficult experience, perhaps difficult to talk about now even. But if you can share with our listeners, what was that experience like? What did you have to go through and endure during that time? Yes, every morning I have to get up early mornings. From early morning on until late in the evenings, I have to go out and work. And uh, physical hard labor that I have to endure. Uh, so by carrying rocks, uh, digging the ground, doing a lot of farming work, uh, doing a road repair, and many type of hard labor that I have to endure. So in the evenings when I uh, came back and, I was, and my whole body was sore, uh, they made me sit in the chair until 10 p.m. Um, and then after that, that I could lay down, but uh, there's no, um, you know, just, the, you know, they, they turned the light on all day, all night long, and it was difficult to go to sleep. And then I was bitten by many uh, insects and mosquitoes. And um, so it was extremely difficult to endure uh, day-to-day uh, labor. Um, not only so that the food that they've given me, uh, they gave me was very um, little. And so I was always uh, battling with hunger, uh, pain, and suffering. And it was, it was a quite, quite of a suffering that I had to endure for two-year period of time. I understand that you lost 50 pounds, uh, 23 kilos while you were there. Uh, so that just shows the kind of uh, grueling uh, situation that you had to uh, undergo. What do we know about... Yes, the... uh, yes. yes go, go on, go Reverend. Yes, yes, I lost 50 pounds in, in the first three months. And then because of my nutrition, I was sent to the hospital. So uh, I, was, I was able to get some treatments from the hospital. But after that, I was sent back to labor camp. Uh, and then uh, I had to endure the, you know, hard labor again. So I was going back and forth about three times before I was released. How serious or bad were the human rights abuses that you witnessed there? How would you describe that? You know, they're, um, they're trying to, um, to let me know that they're, they're trying to, you know, what they're trying to do was because I did, something harm for the country they want me to uh, you know teach me the lessons and you know go through the suffering um, you know it's like um, one time they I had to move the piles of uh, coal uh, from one one side to the other I, I spent about 10 hours moving you know you know uh, the piles of um, you know coal but next day they asked me to uh, you know move back to the where we were before. So those kind of uh, turmoil that I had to go through. Um, but there are many times that even though, um, you know, I, suck, I, I told I, them that uh, rep- repeatedly that, that, you know, because of back pain and then, you know, just many different, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, the physical pain that I, had to, you know, I was experiencing at the time, but, they didn't let me go to the hospital for until when it's when they think that it was appropriate, which is about three months or four months at a time. So it was a difficult to uh, maintain day to day. So I thought that I literally I was gonna die, uh, you know, at any any moment. 
um, if 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 you know doesn't it doesn't you know they if, unless they you know, continue un, unless they send me to the hospital that I was gonna die. Um, so it was a difficult thing to work. Right, I can't imagine what you must have gone through. Uh, but then you were eventually released in 2014. What do we know about the circumstances of your release? Because I understand it came rather unexpectedly. Do you know why you were released, whether any agreement had been reached with the U.S.? Um, yes, that's President Obama sent uh, Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, that came to uh, to negotiate for my release, then I was able to go, you know, to be able to come home after 735 days. Um, it's, it was, um, you know, I think there were several attempts by U.S. government trying to get me home during those times. But finally, after two years, that I was able to come home. Um, but I don't know, you know, there was no deal that was actually uh, negotiated. Uh, but there was a, they, uh, North Korea decided to let me go home at that time. Right. So there are little details about whether there was, as you said, any possible deals uh, between North Korea and the U.S. So there are questions that remain unanswered. Uh, but uh, that you were released, thankfully, uh, then. And uh, perhaps that gives us a little bit of hope for the current situation now with the South Korean nationals who are, building, who are being held by North Korea. Currently, six South Koreans, including three pastors, uh, have been held for several years on charges of committing what Pyongyang called anti-North Korea crimes. Do you think they are going through what you had to endure as well? I asked them, um, I asked the officials that, you know, those uh, people that were held at the time, uh, they were going to come to the same labor camp that I was in, but they say they were not uh, because they were classified as a South Korean. That means that they will be sent to their general populations, um, you know, that where they, you know, there's different places where they help uh, hold the you know, general population. So I don't know what kind of uh, turmoil they were, going, they were going through at the time. Um, so I do believe that um, there will it'll be the something similar, but I don't know that uh, they will be treated differently because they are South Korean rather than you know, non non Korean uh, mm. in terms of citizenship concern. Yeah, right. We have heard horror stories about uh, labor camps and how uh, North Koreans are treated within those labor camps. And so if uh, South Korean detainees have been sent to where the locals have, there are concerns about uh, abuses that are being carried out there uh, potentially as well. Reverend, what do you think North Korea is hoping to gain from detaining them? I'm... I think uh, my case and then and, and and the cases I think is different. What what they um, explained to me is that they were they pretty much brought them in to um, you know make an example out of the you know the so that the you know, people other missionaries will not tend to do it if especially South Korean missionaries are actively involved. Uh, you know, you know, working with North Korean refugees and North Koreans and that who has, a, you know, who's been working in in China, and so they were uh, saying that is 
by uh, detaining them and then put and then and then put them in the labor camp and and then those things and they were there uh, not to negotiate with South Korean governments in any source but to to make example so that the others missionaries will not try something like this again. That's that was what was um, what they told me at the time. Mm. So and I, you know, there's a different cases for those uh, that they they, they help people, they hold people, you know, in a way that um, so that they can uh, negotiate for a certain uh, deal. Right. But in the certain cases that they said, no, no, we're not doing any deal. Uh, we're going to just keep them there to suffer. Um, so it's a very um, um, it's not optimistic situations at this time because uh, some, some of them have been there for almost 10 years now. Mm. Um, and then, um, you know, it's just um, I, I feel so uh, sorry for the, the families that were waiting right. uh, to hear anything from, you know, you know the South Korean government to, 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 to afford their whereabouts right now. But, um, but I, I'm not sure. There is any any um, anything that they're gaining out of it because they're not talking and they're not negotiating mm. so far for the last ten years. Right. So you were yeah. there when uh, some of them were first brought in then uh, ten years ago. So you were aware that they had come and you were speaking to your captors about them then. That's correct. And I actually watched their interviews. Uh, the press conference on the, on the TV, you know, the North Korean TV. Mm. That's how I found out that they were there, actually. I see. So that must have been uh, difficult for you to see as well. I'm sure uh, as a fellow uh, Koreans, obviously you're American, but uh, seeing those uh, South Koreans being detained on those TV screens, I'm sure you'd have uh, been very concerned about their safety as well. South Korea have been uh, trying to address this issue. Uh, They created this task force in September, and then on November 14th, a meeting was held, uh, and this uh, meeting was held for the first time in 11 years on the issue of South Korean adoptees in North Korea. The task force is aimed at addressing the issue of South Korean detainees there, uh, abductees and prisoners of war as well. However, there are questions about its effectiveness, as as we've mentioned, there are no signs of dialogue between the two sides. What do you think the South Korean government can and should do to try and retrieve the detained South Koreans from North Korea? Do you have any suggestions? I think the first thing that uh, South Korean governments need to do is trying to um, develop dialects uh, with North Koreans and to find out uh, their current conditions of the people that have been held there right now so that the families uh, that were waiting to hear that they need to know at least that their loved ones still uh, surviving or they were going through difficulties. You know, just uh, when I was in North Korea, uh, U.S. governments trying trying to do everything possible, try to find out the, my current conditions at the time, and and I was able to um, uh, send and exchange letters with my family members, um, so that I would I would have some ideas what's happening outside, try to get me out of North Korea, and then similarly, um, there, but but right now that there's no communications from. 
uh, North Korean governments or neither, um, you know, the people being held there. Uh, so therefore, uh, families haven't been heard anything that was happening in North Korea for their loved ones being held there. So I think the first one is to inform, trying to at least find different channel. If it's not through direct channel, then maybe through the other diplomatic channel, through U.S. relationship or Japan or China relationship, you know, whatever the relationship is possible, they need to find out. Uh, and at least inform the, um, the family members what's happening currently with those people being held there. I think the second thing is that, um, yes, they, they would continue to need to, um, uh, you know, raise up the issues, awareness, and then continue to talk about this. I think it's important because more they talk about it, I think less human rights uh, abuses will be happening over there because they'll be concerned of what, being being talked about. If they're being forgotten, if they're not being uh, their issues not being raised, then I think um, uh, they will just look the other way and then have them suffer as long as you know they could they, they could hold them. So I do believe that it'll be best uh, for North the South Korean governments need to um, raise the issues to North Korean governments in in many in in any cases possible, any channel possible. And in order to for to hear from any source, any any news from the people being held there. Reverend Bear, we appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to us today and sharing your experiences and your thoughts with us. Uh, we'll leave it there. We'll be speaking to Kenneth Bear. Thank you once again for your time today. All right, thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 26.1 points, or 1.05% on Tuesday, to close the day at 2,521.76. The Tekavi Kosdaq also jumped, climbing 6.19 points, or 0.76%, to close at 816.44. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 10.11 against the U.S. dollar closing the day at 1,293.71. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's our daily segment now, Korea Trending, where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have joining us in the studio, contributor Diane Yu. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Chago. What do you have for us first today? We have a tragic update to a story we covered back in August. A woman in her 20s who was hit by a Rolls Royce driven by a 28-year-old Shinojun while he was allegedly under the influence of drugs near Apgojang Station in Seoul died about four months after the incident. The victim's legal representative announced on Monday that Pei, who was left brain dead and was hospitalized, died of cardiac arrest due to low blood pressure around 5 a.m. last Saturday. Yes, I do remember this story, especially because of the car that was driven, the luxury uh, car, as you said. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sure that this latest development, though, changes a lot of things. But before we look at what this means exactly, can you take us back to August and remind us of what happened exactly? Of course. On August 2nd, Shin was administered psychotropic drugs such as midazolam and diazepam twice at a nearby plastic surgery clinic under the pretense of undergoing surgery and then got behind the wheel. 
Hospital. While traveling, he drove onto the sidewalk near Apkojang Station and hit the victim with his car. He admitted that he failed to take action after the accident, but denied that he tried to escape, saying that he didn't have any intention of running away from the scene. Now, with the changed circumstances, what does this mean for the case? As the victim has now died from her injuries, the prosecutor's office is seeking permission to alter the charges against Shin. The 28-year-old was initially indicted on charges such as causing harm by hit and run under the Act on Aggravated Punishment for Specific Crimes. But now, the uh, prosecutors want to change the charge to causing death by hit and run under the same Act. The prosecution said that they will do their best to impose a sentence that's commensurate with the seriousness of the outcome of the victim's death. Shin's trial is scheduled to be held on December 6th. Yes, it's a very tragic turn of events, as you said. Our thoughts go out to the family, and we'll see how this trial goes as well. Let's continue on to our second story. What do you have for us? So we come across stories of private information leaking through the news more often than we should. Mm. Recently, such leaks have been seen in retail stores while people were returning phones or signing up for plans. And in order to manage and prevent those breaches, the government has come up with some possible solutions. And the solutions were announced by the Korea Communications Commission on Monday. Yes, this is a huge issue, especially nowadays, as phones can contain almost all of an individual's information, Mm. such as banking information, passwords for sites and more. Right. So walk us through these uh, much-needed solutions. The media regulatory agency formed a public-private council last year to help prepare measures. Participants include mobile carriers, distribution associations, use mobile phone companies, consumer groups, and experts. And these groups have actually been meeting since last November and look to block data leaks at each stage, such as during service subscriptions, cancellations, use mobile phone distributions, and disposals. And on top of that, a one-page guide sheet for both mobile phone retailers and customers was created. I see. So what are some of the measures that they came up with on this handy guide? For retailers, the agency urged them to notify customers when they access their phones and data. They also suggested processing personal data together with customers and letting customers back up or delete data from their phones themselves. Under the new measures, stores that have not had accidents resulting in data leaks will be selected as excellent companies. And as for customers, it was advised to not let phones leave their sites and delete all information on their devices in advance before selling it. The Korea Communications Commission added that the agency plans to continue discussions with related businesses so that users can use paid data deleting programs more conveniently at a reasonable price. Yes, as we said, this sounds like an important drive by the government indeed, and it would be great to see even more from the government to help make it easier for people to deal with the situation, especially those who might not be as tech-savvy as well. Let's continue on to our last story. What else has been trending today? The first Korean-born minister was appointed in New Zealand on Monday local time. National Party lawmaker Melissa Lee was appointed the Minister of for Economic Development, Ethnic Communities and Media and Communications at the new government inauguration ceremony held in Wellington, New Zealand. During the ceremony, Minister Lee read the oath for office in both English and Korean. Wow, in both languages. That's Mm. interesting. I'm sure it's uh, not every day they get to see someone reading an oath in both English and Korean. So what did she say in her oath? 
In both languages, she said, I, Melissa Ijian, pledge in accordance with the law to be truly loyal to His Majesty King Charles III, his successors and heirs to the throne. She also added that she pledges to freely use her best judgment at all times when necessary for the smooth operation of government affairs, then took an oath to maintain confidentiality and faithfully perform her duties as minister. After the inauguration ceremony, Minister Yi posted on her social media saying that she was proud to be able to have her Korean identity recognized by taking the oath in Korean as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about her and her story? She sounds like she's had quite a career. Right. She was born in Korea in 1966 and spent her childhood in Malaysia before moving to Australia, where she earned a master's degree in communication studies at Deakin University. She then came to New Zealand in 1988 with her family and worked in journalism as a reporter and anchor for 20 years. She became especially famous after serving as a host and producer of programs covering Asian culture and issues at New Zealand's public broadcaster for 15 years. She was elected to the House of Representatives as a list member of parliament for the National Party in the 2008 election and is serving her sixth term. Well, it's great to hear of another Korean diaspora success story. Congratulations Mm. to Minister Yi now. That's where we'll leave it for today's Korea Trending. Diane, thank you for those stories and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Korean-American LPGA golfer Alison Lee played some of the best golf of her career this year. She finished her 2023 season with three back-to-back runner-up finishes. Her golfing career began with an explosive start. She qualified for the US Women's Open at age 14. Then when she turned professional, she climbed up the ranks to number 25 in the world. And she also made it to the US Solheim Cup team as a rookie. But what makes the golfer that she is today is not just the awards and accolades, but also overcoming the nadir of her career. After that initial rise, E struggled with her form. She lost her Q card and had to go back to Q school. Despite having struggled with pressure and self-doubt, she made it out the other side and played some incredible golf this season. To tell us about her story and her LPGA season this year... Uh, for this week's Touch Basins Hull, we have Ms. Alison Lee joining us via video call now. Ms. Lee, hello, and thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, and I'm uh, really excited for this discussion. Sure. Can we start from the start? Can you just tell us how you uh, began uh, your interest in golf and how you became a professional golfer? Um, so I started playing golf at a pretty young age, probably right when I was around five years old. Um My dad got me into the game of golf. He was a huge golf fan. Um, And yeah, I started my journey pretty young. I played in my very first tournament when I was seven. Um, And as you said, I qualified for the U.S. Open when I was 14. Um, Committed to go to UCLA uh, when I was 16 and then turned pro when I was 19. Right. So you were a natural then. You just picked it up right from a young age. Yeah, I would say so. Um, Part of the reason why I showed promise at a young age is because, um, like I said, my dad was a huge lover of the game. 
Uh, every weekend, he would take me out to the golf course to practice, um, hit range balls, gave me lessons at a very young age. Um, he was he paid a lot of attention to detail as well. He, anytime he had time off, he would make sure he would be watching me playing golf. I mean, he was my very first instructor, essentially, probably up until I was 13, 14. So he taught me my swing. He taught me the move. He taught me how to practice, how to get better. Um, so, yeah. Wow. So it sounds like your father played a big role uh, in your early career. Uh, as you were growing up, who were your golfing inspirations or idols? Um, I would say a huge one is obviously Sari Pack. Um, honestly, I think that's why I play this game of golf today. Uh, she's obviously had so many accomplishments. Um, I think she's the biggest reason why my dad got so interested in the game and saw that I potentially had a future in the sport. Um, and Annika as well. I mean, she has accomplished so much. She's given back to the game of golf um, and to junior golfers as well. I played with Sari Pack when I was 14. Um, when I qualified for the U.S. Open, I played a practice round with her, and that was the coolest experience ever. <laughs> um, and... Annika, she, right when I was around 17, she had a tournament uh, for junior golfers in the United States. And then I later, um, she started the Annika Award for the best um, collegiate golfer uh, for women. And I won that award uh, my freshman year at UCLA as well. And she's given, like I said, she's given back so much to the game. So mm. those are probably my two biggest titles. Right. So, uh, Sari Pak, a, le a legend uh, of the game, uh, especially here in Korea, of course. So it seems Korean golfers had an inspiration uh, for you as well, even though you were uh, based in the U.S. Yeah, of course. I mean, obviously, I'm American, but I grew up uh, Korean-American. Um, to be able to see someone who looks like me play professional sports uh, definitely gave me a lot of inspiration. Um because I feel like, I mean, that's the coolest thing about playing on the LPJ tour and playing women's professional golf. I feel like it's such, um, you see so many international girls from all over the country, from all different parts of the world uh, competing. Um, and if you look at the leaderboard on most of our events, you see so many different uh, flags of different countries girls have come from. So I think that's really, really special. Sure. Uh, as you said, as an amateur, you were ranked uh World number one in the World Amateur Golf Rankings, and that was back in the 2013 to 14 season. And we talked about how you were so successful at a young age. What was that like, being so successful and, uh, and just storming through uh, your career like that? Um, I would say it's been, it was really cool. I mean, I felt like I never really underwent struggle from mm. a young age because I worked so hard and I played in so many events and I felt like I saw my career just kind of going on this, you know, straight arrow, this gradual incline from the age, the very young age, basically. So yeah, I saw my career go on this very steady incline and I worked really hard at a very young age. You know, I practiced every single weekend, um, even mm. on school days, my parents would drop me off at the golf course as soon as I was done with class. Um, I basically stayed at the golf course until it was dark. Mm. Um, and both my parents worked full time. So I was, it was basically school, then golf until my mom was done with work and she can pick me up after work. So I, I worked very, very hard at a very young age. Um, 
looking back now, I mean, I mean, at the time it was obviously very difficult. Uh, I sacrificed a ton. I sacrificed my, basically my whole childhood to pursue this sport. Um, and at times, you know, it was really tough as a young kid when you're 10, 11, 12, all you want to do is hang out with your friends. Um, but, you know, looking back at it now, I'm really, really appreciative. And I'm really glad I went through all that because I feel like it taught me so much. Mm. I learned so much. I was able to accomplish everything I can. And I am here today because I put all that work in at a very young age. And I feel like to be able to excel at any sport at an elite right. level, like that's what it takes. Um, and I get, you know, people are like, oh, well, you just need to put your kid into sports and let them have fun, let them do their own thing. But for me, I know for me, I needed that direction. Right. And, and at times, I mean, when I was seven, eight, nine years old, I mean, I remember all those moments, like at the end of the week playing in a, even if it's a small local tournament mm. with 10, 20 girls coming out on top and winning those events. Like I remember all of that. And those are all my core memories. And it's because I worked so hard at a young age and, even though I, you know, sacrificed a lot. I mean, looking back now, I have all those memories of being able to accomplish everything I can and sure. like seeing all the hard work I put into everything like come to fruition. And even now it's paying off today. Right. And you seem to be on a path to the top uh, after you turned professional as well. You climbed up the rankings, as we said, uh, but then you found a difficult period in your professional career. And last year, you wrote a very powerful essay uh, titled Two Sides of an Unforgiving Game about battling the fear of failure and doubt uh, during your career, during this difficult time. You said you even contemplated quitting uh, golf at the end of 2019 before your parents convinced you to give it another year. Tell us about that period. What was it like for you and how did you end up overcoming it? Um, it was tough because, like I said, growing up, um, I always was the best at my level. Um, as a young kid, eight, nine, ten years old, I competed with girls older than me. Um, even in college, I was the number one player in college, basically. And turning pro was a really big, um, kind of like an eye-opening experience. Because uh, now you're not just playing against the best girls at your age. You're not just playing against the best girls in your state, in your country. Now you're playing against the best girls in the world uh, from all different walks of life, from from different age groups. Girls who are fiery players, some girls who have a ton of experience under their belt. And, and it, was, it was a really eye-opening experience. And I went from basically accomplishing all my goals – that I set for myself every year to ex basically experiencing failure. Um, and it was really tough for me. And I think I, I slow and I, I'm very hard on myself in general. I feel like um, I'm a perfectionist in many ways and, you know, playing my rookie year, I had a great year, but my one goal was to win on the LPGA tour and I wasn't able to do that. And it is a pretty big goal. I mean, it's, it's tough to just, put yourself in contention. And I just assumed that when I would turn pro, I would win a ton of times and I didn't do that. And I, it, it, I was really hard on myself. And I think I just kept, you know, digging myself my own grave, basically right. deeper for every year. And when I got to a point a few years into it where I wasn't performing the 
the way I wanted to, I started to overthink. I started to um, doubt myself. I started to lose a lot of confidence. Um, yeah. And I just kind of went down this spiral and I was like, okay, well, what am I doing? Like, mm. why am I here? I, my one goal is to win and I want to win multiple times and I haven't done that yet. Clearly I'm not good enough. And that's kind of, it took over me basically for a couple of years until I finally didn't believe in myself anymore. My swing felt terrible. I lost all confidence. I, I couldn't even make a cut. And I kind of had an identity crisis, right? Because I played golf since I was five or six, and that's all I knew. And I imagined having this huge, successful career, and it, it wasn't happening for me. Mm. And I just thought, okay, well, I, I suck. Like, I, I was in a really deep hole. Um, How did you find your way out yeah, of that hole? Yeah, I mean, it, it took a lot of time. Um, there were a lot of moments where I, I told a lot of close friends and family that I wanted to step away from the game, maybe start a different career. I, I had graduated from UCLA as well. So I was like, okay, I have that option. Um, but thankfully, I have a great team around me. I My coach, Chris Mason, I started working with him right around that time when I was struggling a lot. And he really saw something in me. He really believed in me and he turned my swing around. I had people around me who believed in me as well. And that's kind of what brought me out of it. It's, it, it was a team effort. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just me trying to bring myself out. It was, you know, the constant support and love from all the people around me who believed in me and told me like, Hey, you've been there before. Like you, you know what it takes to, um, be one of the best in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, the work ethic that it takes. Um, and slowly, I just kind of slowly tried to climb myself out of that hole. And it, it wasn't until I would say last year where I fully felt like, okay, now I'm in the place I want to be. What can I do to take myself to the next level? And it, I mean, there are still moments and there are still weeks here and there where I, I still doubt myself once in a while and I don't feel 100% confident. Mm. Um, but But like I said, I mean, it's it definitely was a team effort. It was the help from friends, family, coaches, um, people who truly saw something in me that right. I forgot in myself. And I imagine it would have been a lot of hard work uh, practicing. That's how, what would have got you through it as well on your part. Do you feel that difficult period is behind you now? As you said, you finished this season with your highest ever professional ranking of uh, 20th in the world rankings, and you finished... Uh, runner-up in uh, multiple uh, events towards the end of the season, including the uh, BMW Ladies' Championship held in Korea here in Paju this October. Do you th feel you're on a better uh, place now? Yeah, of course. I mean, golf is, is a weird, crazy game, right? <laughs> I mean, one day I feel like I can I can win easily and I can beat every girl standing in front of me, and there are days where you just don't feel it. Um so yeah, I feel like I'm definitely trending in the right direction. I feel really good about my game. Um, there always still is a little doubt in me. I mean, I, I'm trying really hard to be super positive and push all those negative thoughts, but you can't help your brain from getting into into certain dark places. So that's something, that's a battle that I think I will always have to fight every single day um, for the rest of my career. Um, but yeah, I definitely do feel really good about my game. I Finally, I feel like something broke through in Korea. 
Um, that was my best finish in a really long time. And then since then, I've been playing some amazing golf. And unfortunately, our season's basically ended now. So I can't continue that little stretch that I had. But, um, you know, I get some time home at home, uh, two months off. And hopefully I can come back stronger next year because it, it really ignited a fire in me placing so high and almost getting my first LPJ win in Korea. And I mean, I've been on tour for nine years. I just finished my ninth season and I still haven't had that win that, you know, that goal I had my coming out my rookie year on tour mm. um, for a long time. I thought I would never win. And I grew to accept that. I would say last year, even beginning of this year, I had a conversation with my coach and I broke down and I told him like, I don't, I don't think I'll ever win out here. It's maybe it's just not for me anymore. Um, but one of my good friends, Megan Kang, um, this is her, I believe eighth season as well. And she's an amazing player. I mean, always on the leaderboard, always on top. And she was looking for her first win as well. And she won this year, um, at the Canadian open and to see us, you know, share that bond of like, okay, when are we going to win? Almost losing that belief that we could win on tour and to see her come out on top and finally win this year for the first time it really ignited like a fire in me and i thought wow like right. that's so inspiring i saw her win mm. and we've been talking about this for so long i i want that to be me next um so yeah it's it's been really heartbreaking the last three lpg events coming in second place the last three um but I feel like I'm so close. I feel really good about my game. I feel so much more confident and comfortable on the golf course, especially right. being put in that situation multiple times. I feel like you always have something to learn and something to grow from each event, um, especially when you're in the hunt that week. You know, when you see your name on the leaderboard, when you're that close, you you start to slowly get accustomed to being up there and, yeah, basically being in that kind of mode and it was just so much fun and and that's what we live for that's what we practice for yeah we're almost out of time we are out of time but if we might have just a couple of perhaps words of advice or encouragement for any players out there who are going through difficult times uh, what would you say to them very briefly i would say it might seem impossible and tough at the time but just know that every great player has experienced struggle. Um, you're not alone. If you look at any great golfer, any great professional athlete, or anyone who's at the top of their game or the best at whatever they do, everyone has experienced some sort of struggle in their life. Right. And that doesn't, the, the struggle is not what defines them as a person. It's what comes after. So, don't let that struggle define you. It's about what you do after the struggle and how you make the most of it and what you can do to come back, whether it's Hmm. giving your all, never giving up. And I mean, even if it's turning it around Hmm. and finding a new career path, I mean, you just have to learn from what you are doing in the moment, no matter how crappy it might seem at the time, because that's not what's going to define your career. It's, It's what comes after. 
Well, thank you for that. And congratulations again on a great season. And we wish you all the best for next year as well. We've been talking to LPGA golfer Alison Lee. Thank you once again for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much. Hi, I'm Austin Dean, first baseman for the LG Twins, and you are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. Before we wrap up the show, it is, of course, our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features, reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have joining us in the studio, as ever, our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you, too. Okay. so what's the first article that you have for us today? So we've talked on the show about how big of a problem ticket scalping has become in Korea. Mm. We have seen this issue at K-pop concerts. And I remember that last year, pianist uh, Im Yoon-chan's concert in Seoul was affected by it as well. Yes, it was. Well, I read Hong Yoo's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald, and it's about a petition to change the ticket scalping law that was submitted to the Korean government last week. Right. So Korea has a ticket scalping law already, which has been around for decades, I understand. But the issue is that it's outdated, right? Yeah. So the law came into effect about 50 years ago, but so much has changed since then. I can imagine. Yeah, we have computers now. There are programs called macro programs that automatically go through online ticketing processes for you. Mm. This sounds like the perfect tool at first, but scalpers are using the programs to get a hold of as many tickets as possible, sell them for extortionate prices, and then make money. Mm. These programs are not included in the ticket scalping law, as it came out way after it was introduced. Right now, the law only prohibits ticket reselling at public venues and at transportation stations. But the petition I mentioned earlier looks to change that. Okay, so who submitted the petition and what are the next steps following its submission? Well, the Record Label Industry Association submitted it to the government. It wants the government to introduce a law that bans people from selling tickets for higher than its original price, and obviously to include macro programs in the banned items list. Mm. The article mentions that it has turned into a public petition. What this means is the government has to gather public opinion for 30 days and then make a decision within 90 days. So who knows? Maybe next year we can finally see this issue go away. Or at least limit or make it more difficult for ticket scalpers to get away with what they're doing. Uh, I mean, this will be good news for fans. It'll be welcome news indeed. But I think there will be quite a lot of obstacles uh, in the way until we see that day. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of hurdles to cross. And I'm sure uh, scalpers will be looking to adapt their ways as well. (laughs) Sure. But uh, in the meantime, yes, as we said, hopefully it will make it more difficult for them. Let's uh, move on to our next article. What do you have for us? Next is John Dunbar's article in the Foreign Community section of the Korea Times. It's about an event that has taken place this weekend that will interest train spotters or history buffs. Right, okay. So the Royal Asiatic Society Korea is holding a guided tour of the Korail Railroad Museum on Saturday. The article has quite a lot of information about the tour, as well as what can be found in the museum that's located south of Seoul. Okay, so the Korail Railroad Museum. Yes. I think I can guess what can be found there, but uh, can you walk us through what is on display? A variety of trains that have been in use throughout Korea's history. Mm. (laughs) So on the first floor, visitors are able to take a look and even board these trains. So these include the fast KTX trains and the slower Mugunghwa trains. Actually, one of the reasons why I chose this article was because I learned a new fact about Korean history. Okay. Train history. So before the 1990s, there was an even slower train called uh, Bidogi, which means pigeon in Korean. If someone wanted to go from Seoul to Busan and they took the 6.30 a.m. train, they wouldn't arrive at Busan until 9.15 p.m. 
15 hours yes. later. Okay. Yes. So the train stopped at every station. But yeah, that train is on display as well. Well, considering now it only takes, what, three hours three, to get to three Busan? Hours, yeah. Yeah, that is quite... I can't uh, imagine it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, and finally, there is an outdoor area that has 26 train cars, including steam, diesel and electric locomotives. The article also says that uh, there are VIP trains that were used by presidents of Korea and the US, as well as the head of the UN command. Okay, so visitors will be able to see that and more at the museum. Yes. But if they go on Saturday, there will be a guided tour then. There will at 12.30pm. And the tour guide is Michael Duffy, a British national who started working at the Korea National Railroad College in March 2004. That's, I believe that's one year before the KTX fast trains were introduced. Oh, okay. Yeah, so uh, it might make learning about the history of these trains a little easier. Tickets cost 30,000 Korean won or 23 US dollars, and you can purchase them at the Royal Asiatic Society's website. Great, that's where we're going to wrap it up for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And we wrap up our show there. Thank you for staying with us. Do join us again tomorrow for more news, reviews, and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon Jangwa. And thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. Morani Pigikajinan Kim Young Lang. Until peonies bloom, I Kim Yongnang. Morani Pigikajinan Nananajik Naui Pomer Kidarigo Isil Teo. Morani Tuktuk Dorojo Parinal Nanan Piroso Pomer Yoin. Sorume Changil Teo. Until peonies bloom, I'll just go on waiting for my spring. On days when peonies drop, drop their petals, I'll finally languish in sorrow at the loss of spring. Uol Onunal Ku Haru. 무덥던 날 떨어져 누운 꽃잎마저 시들어 버리고는 천지에 모라는 자취도 없어지고 One day in May, that one sultry day when the fallen petals had all withered away there was no trace of peonies in all the world 뻗쳐 오르던 내 보람 서운케 무너졌느니 모란이 지고 말면 그뿐 내 한해는 다 가고 마라 My soaring sense of fulfillment had crumbled into sorrow Once peonies have finished falling my year is over. For all 360 days, I sadly lament. 360날 한양 섭섭해 우옵니다. 모란이 피기까지는 나는 아직 기다리고 있을 테요. 찬란한 슬픔의 봄을.
until peonies bloom. I'll just go on waiting for a spring of glorious sorrow. You've listened to Korean poet Kim Yong-ran's Morani Pigikaji Nun, Until Peonies Bloom, read by An Jae-woo and translated by brother Anthony of Tae's An Son-jae. KBS World Radio brings the beauty of Korean poetry to the world. <laughs>